Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to our Classic Album Club podcast. And in this episode, we revisit the wonderful music of the Small Faces and their 1968 album, Ogden's Nutgarn Flake. We all were good players. We were getting better and better. Mostly the songs we wrote are songs that meant something to us. They were about something that we had all experienced. So that's why the songs are so good, I think. We'll be hearing from their legendary drummer, Kenny Jones, on their early days in the band, the concept of Ogden's Nutgarn Flake and the creative process behind the masterpiece. We were talking about what we're going to use for an album cover for this concept we've done. So we thought, OK, well, why does everything have to be square? I remember we were looking down on the coffee table. The tin was right there. Ogden's Tobacco in a round tin. OK, we'll have that as an album cover. So let's make a round one. First off, Kenny Jones reveals the change in scene from which the ideas behind the concept of the album first took off. It was a breath of fresh air. It was unbelievable because basically the early days of the small faces, we went to different studios all the time, but we weren't given enough time to actually create things. So when we met up with Andrew Oldham, and he's such a, such a great guy, it was a bit of a spiv, I would say. He was, he was a well-dressed young guy, entrepreneur, loved music. He just sort of put us in the right direction. He's told us about his label. That time, he was in. He was totally beside with the mamas and papas. He brought those over from America, and they were on immediate as well. Um, and so the label was a, not just a toy for him, but it was just a, a release for him as well. Because it, it was a, it was the first version of its day, breakaway record company, standalone on its own. And also, it was a pleasure to go to the offices where they were in New Bond Street. So we were there every day. It's a nice place to hang out. And Chris Farlow was on the label and uh, Pat Arnold, various other people. Rod Stewart, funny enough, as well. We, we were allowed as much studio time as we wanted. And also Olympic Studios had just opened. So we virtually lived in there. So it was freedom. Andrew came to us one day and he said, look, guys, he said, uh, uh, you're drying up. You know, you're always on the road. So I've fixed up a, a weekend away for all of you. I've hired a boat to go up and down the Thames and you can write songs and have a bit of free time so we thought great we've never been on a boat before had such a laugh it was fantastic we're going up and down the Thames Mac our keyboard player nearly smashed into um, this guy on a sailing boat funny enough this guy was at the front and he had he was dressed in white he had a white out white socks white trousers white shirt you know white shoes the lot and Mac was getting nearer and nearer and it's, it's scraped alongside him all I could hear was this guy shouting out to Mac scourge of the sea scourge of the sea and then we had found ourselves in, near Windsor Castle and they had an old destroyer and I tried to turn round and of course the current took me into the side of this destroyer so I, I smashed into the side of this destroyer and all I remember is my face ended up in the, in the porthole of <laughs> looking through the window of these people having Sunday dinner so we, we, we decided on the last day we better do so. So we moored up alongside and we lit a fire. You know, the acoustics came out and then, uh, all right, what are we going to write about? So, and that was it. So I think we just looked up at the moon and saw half a moon and thought that that would do. 
basically from that trip was really inspired us but out of a laugh comes a, a bit of serious work we d- decided to write about something completely different which is happiness day and looking for the other half of the moon and that's the beginning of Ogden's at the time I was doing loads of sessions for other people big band sessions and stuff like that which I really enjoyed doing out of these band sessions I came up with an idea which I, could, I couldn't play guitar so I, could, I had to hum it to everybody that was Ogden's Not Gone Flake but what I was doing I was doing at the time I was working with these big bands and big band sessions so the, my drumming was leaning to Towards big orchestral fills because I was doing so many sessions and I kind of what I learned from other people from those sessions I brought to the band that's what I adopted that kind of playing for Ogden's Not Gone Flake not just that one track but for most of the tracks along the way we had our own place in Pimlico in Westmoreland Terrace 22 Westmoreland Terrace and Honor Blackman lived next door and we all fancied her like mad but and, until I found out she was old as my mum <laughs> that changed everything she was lovely because I lived in Stepney, it was just in those days I could get to my house in Stepney from Pimlico in literally five minutes. It's gone of the days, unfortunately. But so I used to drive my little mini home. So I stayed at home because I couldn't stand it. I liked to, I liked to go to bed early and get up early, that sort of thing. So I had a room there, and I go there in the evening. And I, you know, I never know who was going to be around. One minute it'd be Paul McCartney, next minute it could be John Lennon, the next minute, you know, Eric Clapton, all kinds of things. Like very early days. Yeah, Donovan used to be go round. Everyone used to go round. Well, it'd be smashed out of my head on, just on the smoker that was going around, and um, we, we weren't sort of disturbing anyone. But I could never stay in it because I'd never get any sleep. I think everyone got fed up with each other's, not fed up with each other's company, but we were still young boys and we were still growing up. So everyone decided, okay, we want our own flats now, and so yeah, we all lived apart, part of growing up. Songs like Rini and Ichiku Park typified the group's. Songs like Rini and Ichiku Park typified the group's strong London identity and cultural background, and like many of their songs, drew their inspiration from personal experiences. Mostly the stuff that the songs we wrote are songs that meant something to us, about something that we had all experienced. Rini was written about my aunt Rini, funny enough, because I grew up in the docks in, the, in Stepney in East End of London. And it was all Docklands and stuff like that. So during the war, she was a uh, was a, a, a quite a, a lady, <laughs> we should say, and she she was well sought after. Let's put it that way. And so we really the Dockers' delight. She she lets the ships in every night, groping with a stoker from the coast of Kuala Lumpur. So that's the kind of lady she was. Well, she was great. She was lovely. I'm not saying she was bad. Perfect lady. Ichigo Park. It was written about something we knew, a park in the East End called Ichigo Park. So we all started to talk about. Where was your Ichigo Park anyway? My Ichigo Park was, uh, when I was a kid growing up, everyone wore short trousers. So I used to play on all the bomb ruins uh, just after the war. So I know these great big stinging nails would poke through. That was Ichi. That was, that was my Ichigo Park. So all our growing up childhood sort of memories. That's why the songs are so good, I think. The Small Faces first burst onto the British music scene in the summer of 1965 under the guidance of their legendary manager Don Arden with their first hit, What You Gonna Do About It? Commercial success never proved difficult for the band to achieve. However, it created an image that they would continually battle against. What You're Gonna Do About It, I really liked, because that basically was a, really, a song that was a very happening song that's going around at that time. It fitted in at that particular moment. So the first time I heard it on the radio, I couldn't believe it was us, you know, very soulful song. What got in the way was this commercialism of that Don Arden was... He was a great manager, don't get me wrong, because, I mean, he got us onto every single TV show, everything that was going. So he broke the band really quickly. But in order to do that, we had to suffer these commercial songs. After What's Going to Do About It, we, we decided that we wanted to write our own songs. And the next single was I Got Mine. And that flopped. 
So Don Arm's having none of that again. He said, no, I, I can't, we can't afford to have another flop. So I've got Kenny Lynch and Mort Schumann who's written a song called Shalalalali. So we went up to uh, Decker Studios in West Hampstead to record it. And Kenny Lynch was there as well. And we started to record it. And I'll never forget, Kenny said, he just pressed a button in the control room and, and said, Kenny, don't forget, don't play anything you can't mime to. In other words, don't do complicated fills and stuff like that. So it really pissed me off that one. I thought, oh no, what am I going to do now? But a huge hit it was. So it put us back on there. But from there on in, the next single had to be commercial. But we insisted on writing it. So that's what we did. We could never lose that teeny bopper image. And it really got to us. We wanted to be recognised for our ability to play. And we didn't particularly want to go down that commercial route. We wanted to be more like a rhythm and blues band like Zoop Money and, and those Georgie family that was going around at the time. And we used to love Booker T and the MGs and that's where we would have liked to have gone. And I still think we could have written some great songs within that if we didn't have this burden of writing another commercial song. But I'll never forget when uh, we're on the road and in the Station Hotel in Leeds. We just checked into our rooms and Steve was running down the, the hallway saying, I've got it, I've got our next single, I've got our next single. So we'll open the door and, and there he was and he sang All or Nothing right there. The basic idea of it anyway. So that's where it was premiered for the very first time ever. The Station Hotel in Leeds. What's amazing about that particular single was we shared the number one spot. God knows how Don Arden did it, but we shared the number one spot with the Beatles, Yellow Submarine. We all were good players, we were getting better and better. The songs on Ogden's Nut Gone Flake would develop into something psychedelic and very different, a million miles away from the energetic teenage band that first emerged in the mid-1960s. Coming up on this episode of Classic Album Club. Subconsciously, all of us were thinking, how do we follow this? What's our next album going to be? Because we made a terrific, terrifically big statement with Ogden's. And, and one thing I would have loved to have done uh, is to play it live. And even that was a daunting task just to think about. Bottom line is, Alters is just a masterpiece. It's just a great thing to do. It's a great concept to come up with. And I, li I listen to it and fall in love with it myself every time I hear it. Among music fans of a certain age, there is debate about who came up with the first concept album. It would be fair to say that the small faces are strong contenders. They envisaged Ogden's Nut Gone Flake taking the form of a surreal story with a narrator. The narrator idea came along after we'd done a couple of tracks and, um, and we thought we need someone to tell the story as well because the lyrics, each song is uh, lyrically tells a story. So we needed someone to pull it together and Spike Milligan was our first choice. But unfortunately, even though he wanted to do it, he was committed, he couldn't do it in, in, the, in the time space we, we needed him to do it in. But Stanley Unwin could, which we made the right choice as well, I've got to say. But a great believer in fate. Stanley always hung out with us. He said, I want to get to know each one of you individually. So he spent time with us, each of us individually. So whilst we were recording and whatever, and he just uh, got to know us, uh, our personalities and certain little sayings we used to come out with. In, in the band so he took some of those phrases and and put them into the, into into the dialogue it's all about this little character called happiness stan who goes in search of the other half of the moon he thinks the world's coming to an end he's he's just fascinated with where it goes to really a quite simple idea happiness stan on an adventure and he bumps into different people along the way like the fly and mad john trying to find the other half of the moon there's only seven songs that tell the story and that to me as far as i'm concerned the other side of the album is nothing to do really with Ogden's. It was Ogden's, the seven songs was, was the Ogden's. So that's Ogden's. But Stanley Unwin, you know, we let him out a little because that was the best, that's the beauty of it. Like, blow your call, man. Do, he'd do this deep focus and stuff like that. He just wanted to understand the story of each song. So he had to read all the lyrics and understand that the basic story 
concept the whole the whole lot right the way through. Some of our jams got we got really creative with them, so they became songs. We'd just fall in love with it if it was that good. I mean, I, I remember went into Drum City in Shaftesbury, Shaftesbury Avenue, and this guy came in and gave me the, the biggest symbol I've ever seen in my life: twenty-six inch ride with a big bell on it. I used that symbol on that track rolling over. That's why it's all swimming in a symbol. Funny enough, I remember uh, Townsend he used to pop in to, while we were making Old Town Snuggle on Flake because he lived in Twickenham in those days, and you had to go right past the Olympic Studios to to go home, and so he used to call in and see us. And we used to play him certain songs on about you know Ogden's bits, and he, and he said, well, "I was driving home, and after listening to what you'd done on Ogden's, he, he said I got so jealous. He said I tried to write something similar, and I couldn't come up with anything. That's how I ended up coming up with a deaf, dumb, and a blind, blind kid. So that's how, that's how inspired him to do Tommy. We used to overdub lots of acoustic guitar, and he, Steve and Ronnie used to love playing acoustics together on their J200s and stuff. That was lovely, great sound." And don't forget, Glyn Johns was the engineer at that time. Even he wasn't a producer at that time. He's a great engineer. But I have to say, I contribute him to being part of the, the producers as well. We, we produced it ourselves. But he had enormous amount to do with it as well. I mean, we were quite inventive as a band, so we'd try anything, anything that made a noise that would fit. Anything. We would. We'd, if it, it, don't, it could be a guitar case. It could be anything. A toilet seat. Anything. You know. We always sat, stood around the mic with a piece of paper and put it over our comb. We always had a comb in our back pockets in those days. And so we make blow through it and that made that noise, which is, uh, we just had the idea to do it, so we did it. What I loved about the small faces was the fact that we all had this telepathic feel about us, you know. We never really told each other what to play or do. No one ever told me what to play. We just, we just clicked. So we had this telepathic view of each other. It is very unusual. The story as well it came naturally, to be honest, and I, I could see it. We lived it because we, we, were, we were on the journey with the fly. We might as well have been on the fly's back, you know, because we could see it. Another innovation was the circular album cover that accompanied the record and featured no information or notes, only four arty photos of the band. It goes right back to Westmoreland Terrace, basically. Uh, we were all around there. In those days, we used to, we used to roll our joints with um, Ogden's Tobacco in a round tin. Most tobacco was in around him. We were talking about album covers, what we're we going to use for an album cover for this concept we've done. And, we, yeah, and so we thought, OK, well, why does everything have to be square? So let's make a round one. I remember we were looking down at, uh, on the coffee table where all our spliffs were and bits of tobacco flowing about. And there it was. The, the tin was right there on top of the tobacco. The, the lid was off, just right there. And it, we said, OK, we'll have that as an album cover. We just changed it to Ogden's Nut Gom because it makes your nut go basically every, every time you have a spliff. So the great thing was when it got released it, and they didn't know, the shops didn't know how to handle it, you, you couldn't stack them because they would warp. You put, them on, you put them on the shelves and they'd roll off. What I love later on in, in one of the re-releases is basically when we released it in a tin, which is perfect for me because, you know, it was, it was the, the tobacco tin. Subconsciously, all of us were thinking, how do we follow this? What's our next album going to be? Because we made a terrific terrifically big statement with Ogden's and and one thing I would have loved to have done uh, if we hadn't split up is, is to play it live and even that was a daunting task just to think about lots of things around in those days there weren't that many effects there was, there was only a Mellotron around it would have been very difficult to do live we needed more than just a second guitarist I mean I always thought if we ever do it live it's got to be done like a big band in other words if we overdub three or four guitars you needed three or four other guitarists to do them those bits and same with brass and same with all kinds of stuff, you know. Don't forget, 
What was happening? Because when we when we were on our media, right, putting out the songs we wanted, you know, like Tin Soldier and things like that, that was going in the right direction. Don Arm was putting out these commercial songs on Decca because they could still release them. And it was it just and putting another nail in our coffin, really. No sooner we come out with Here Come the Nice and, and Tin Soldier and things like that, then there'll be another commercial song on Decca. We couldn't get away from it. So I think it, it obviously got to Steve. It got to us all, but it got to Steve more. So we, we, in other words, we, we couldn't get lose that teeny bubber sort of image. I was kind of jealous of The Who, in a sense, because they overcome their problems like this. And we should have overcome our problems and stuck together. Which I, I know we would have reworked Ogden's, just like The Who did Tommy. We should have pulled together and stayed together and overcome those differences. We we didn't. I think what got to Steve was, how can we follow Ogden's not gone flake? It's a good time to end. We were doing some gigs. Um, we, the last gig we did was, uh, one of the gigs we were doing was uh, Alexander Palace, and it was New Year's Eve. So that was one of the gigs we did. And that was it. Steve took it upon himself to throw the guitar down on stage and walk off without telling us. But we didn't know he was putting humble pie together behind our backs. We were all incredibly upset because basically... Losing one of your brothers is like, it was terrible. We all knew each other so well. And we were, we were like brothers together. And for one of them, when you miss one brother, he suddenly walked off. He left a big, it's like a divorce. We just couldn't get over it. Ogden's. It was parked, let's put it that way. It was parked and that was it. Because don't forget, the faces were not the same as the small faces. A completely different band, completely different music. The legacy of the small faces, and particularly Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, is plain to see it resonates to this day. And Kenny is also finding new inspirations in the story of Happiness Stan. It's hard to analyse something that works. I, you know, I think it's honesty and the feeling that we're having a laugh and we're, it, we're, the, people, the young kids of this day recognise our youth at that time and that comes across. And it's almost like most of the, the songs, especially the Ogdens, has been handed down from father to son or daughter through the decades. So we've got these amazing young fans, even to this day. It's incredible. Life is just a bowl of oil brand. You wake up every morning and it's there. So live as only you can. It's all about enjoying Because ever since you saw it, no one can take it away. It doesn't make any sense, but it's fine. The meaning is fun, you know, and life is basically, you can't do anything about life. It's just going to go on. Ogden's. It never left me. So I've been living with it since the day we started to record it. But for me, I've always seen it as an animation film, so I'm doing an animation film of it. The, the tin features quite prominently in there. It becomes a magical tin. So when Stan lifts the lid off, lots of things happen. When I wrote the uh, lyrics out, which tells a story for each song, I realised that the story was incredibly thin, not lyrically in terms of singing, but when you actually read it. So I thought, well, I've got to elaborate on this because no everyone's gone now, so I've invented a few characters along the way and different, a few new songs to go in between certain things, which pads it out because it's going to be a full-length animation film. It just, and it's not really a musical it just so happens the music is going to be stunning anyway. So I'm getting my, my teeth stuck into that. Uh, I'm just going to sail out on this one. The bottom line is, Alton's is just a masterpiece. It's just a great thing to do. It's a great concept to come up with. And I, li I listen to it and fall in love with it myself every time I hear it. Very proud of it. Very proud of the work. Ronnie, Steve and Mac are with me every single day. I think about them all the time. I know they're egging me on to get this film out of the way because <laughs> I know we would have reworked it I know we would have still had fun with it I, to be honest I look at it, I look upon it as a one piece so it's all my favourite 
I don't just want to say, oh, does not go and flake because I, I write the song. But but I do love the, I do love the instrumental on there. It's great to play. I see it as a whole, not individually. If you carve it all up, see, each track is great. But I have to look at it objectively as one. It's it's an album that never dies, it never leaves you. It's you you fall in love with it and you fall in love with it forever. Our thanks to Small Faces drummer Kenny Jones. I'm Mark Goodyear, and you've been listening to the Classic Album Club podcast. Oh,